Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Black Panther movie is a box office phenomenon. It's a representational milestone. On its surface, the Black Panther's a classic tale of peaceful means versus violent means. But on a deeper level, it speaks to black liberation, Africans in the diaspora, black women and men, the resource curse, and Wakanda first. We'll have a no-colds-barred discussion of Black Panther today. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Black Panther is a global phenomenon. It's a hugely entertaining action flick, but it's also struck a deeper nerve, igniting a debate on race issues, the deep state, regime change, colonialism, and especially identity. So we sitting here looking at this dope-ass Black Panther poster, and the conclusion that we have all come to is that this is what white people get to feel all the time. All the time! All the time! Since the beginning of cinema. All the time! You get to feel empowered this. like this and represented. This? This is what y'all feel like all the time? I would love this country, too. <laughs> Let's talk about Wakanda and the Black Panther movie. We're going to give away the ending on this program, but I don't think the conversation is going to uh, deter your enjoyment of the movie. It will enhance it, I think. Um, and with me here in the studio is Ainahia Doro. She's assistant professor of global Anglophone literature at Marquette University, founder of BrittlePaper.com, and her recently co-authored article is Africa is a Country in Wakanda. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Nicola Woodruff is with us. She is a legal analyst for the Natural Resources Governance Institute, and her article on the Institute's website is Beyond Wakanda's Way, Africanizing Mining Sector Benefits. Thanks for joining us, Nicola. It's a pleasure to be here. And also with us is Christopher LeBron. He's an associate professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University, the author of The Making of Black Lives Matter, and his article in the Boston Review is titled <clears throat> Black Panther is Not the Movie We Deserve. Um, Christopher, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about the beginning of the movie in Oakland okay. with the Black Panthers. And uh, the setting up of Killmonger there, there's a lot going on. Um, how did you read that opening scene? Well, it, it was – the opening scene only only starts to really be um, – really starts to fill out about halfway through the movie because the initial scene, as most of your, viewer, of your listeners will know by now, um, begins with, uh, you know – Kids playing on a on a basketball playground, um, and then the scene shifts up to the apartment um, where um, where the father is um, where the father is about to um, get involved in, in trying to sell some weapons. Um, and the opening scene doesn't doesn't really begin to make sense to us until we figure out that the little boy who's downstairs that's down downstairs in the playground is is the future killmonger and what we begin to see in the apartment scene at least is the desire for um 
you know, a, a person we come to know as being Wakandan, wanting to liberate black people. Um, and I think that I think I think Kugler puts this scene in Oakland for exactly that reason. The idea that the original Black Panther Party wanted believed in self and believed in self defense and arming um, black folks to protect their neighborhood from what they consider to be terrorist police. And here you have this man with access to arms trying to in some sense empower black folks with weapons. So I think Google was definitely trying to draw a parallel between the Black Panther Party um, and the action being set in Oakland, at least in this regard. So uh, it sets up something where the impulse that Killmonger eventually has to fulfill his father's dream is a noble impulse. They're, they're trying to liberate their people in a deeply revolutionary way, but, it's, um, but the waters get muddied with uh, Killmonger's character, and, and you write about this in your article. That's right. Actually, I'm not sure it's, it's posed as a noble pursuit um, because immediately what happens is T'Chaka shows up, um, T'Challa's father, who is a previous king of Wakanda, um, and is not trying to really listen um, to the claim that black Americans need to be armed to fight off racism and police brutality. Um, so pretty quickly, he's seen as having betrayed Wakanda and to be clear and fair, um, he does use claw at that moment in history to obtain the vibranium. But nonetheless, there isn't even a case that T'Chaka is willing to listen to in order to be able to figure out why a person would go to such lengths to betray his country. And I think the response is that maybe he didn't betray Wakanda as much as he was trying to shake them into action or to take action despite Wakanda's laconic response to global racism, which at this point in history, actually, it's quite aware of, but just chooses to ignore. So I'm not sure it's actually portrayed as a noble fight. All right. And then, but the Killmonger character does eventually become kind of uh, uh, more of a street thug. I mean, he has a noble aspiration that is uh, something that is uh, uh, kind of mixed up in street thuggery. Well, at least that's that's how it, how how it how it comes across. I mean, there's a certain aesthetic that Michael um, Jordan's character is is brought to the screen with um, that's familiar, having come from Oakland. It's, he definitely comes across as <clears throat> the kind of prototypical, you know, inner city black male. Um, but what, but I think what makes him a thug is not so much the the aesthetic representation or how he speaks. It's, it's the fact that his desire for domination through force becomes completely decoupled for from the fight for liberation, which is where which is a step that the movie takes. Maybe we can speak about this more. But the step the movie makes that doesn't really fully justify or explain. He has this vision when he becomes a panther and he revisits his Oakland apartment. And he's clearly a man who's been broken by his grief and his rage. Um, and it's when he comes out of that that vision um, that all of a sudden he really desires to burn it all, as he says, and to start shipping weapons globally. And it's at that moment that the desire for power comes completely undone from having been abandoned by both American egalitarianism and by Wakanda. And so he just seems at that point in the movie to have just shifted into demagoguery and demagoguery in that in that in that embodiment is thuggishness no matter what the color of your skin is where you come from that is just thuggishness wanting to overpower people with force for the sheer desire of overpowering people i how did you read that scene how did you read what was going on with killmonger and that started in in oakland it's actually <clears throat> it's odd to me because killmonger has a sense of what violence is and how it intersects with power. 
he gets it that, look, violence is a structural thing. That violence is something, is a way that we organize the world. And that no matter how we desire for freedom, if we do not upend the structure that places us in a particular kind of way, there's never going to be freedom. And that so when we present Killmonger's feelings as rage, as this kind of individual personal rage of vengeance, it belittles it because he states it clearly. It's because we don't have guns at a global level that black people have always suffered. And that so for me, I saw him as being part of a certain kind of black radical politics that I would situate with the work of somebody like Franz Fanon, the Martinican um, psychiatrist, for whom there is no way you can end a systemically oppressive system without shifting where violence and power lies. That is exactly what Killmonger was trying to do. He's a perfectly Fanonian figure. So to now make him seem like this small-minded man who does not know how to handle power, just to be honest, I think the movie just misses something that is much more deeply and structurally utopian by making him into this bad guy. Whereas T'Challa, who is this, to be honest, uninteresting figure, (laughs) now becomes the hero. And I mean, he's solution for the problems at the end of the day is creating a humanitarian center. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Aid? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's so mm-hmm. in this vision of what the future and blackness is globally, right? To reimagine the future as oriented towards blackness is to re constitute or reproduce this kind of liberal notion of, you know, black people and aid and, and, and I mean, I'm just like, like, no, that was a very <laughs> underwhelming ending to All me. Right. All right. That, that, you made a bunch of excellent points. Uh, Nicola, I wonder if you have some thoughts on this. Uh, do you have some thoughts about the, uh, the, the kind of direction that things take there with Killmonger? <laughs> um. Well, I mean, I, I can sense the, the real um, objection to how Killmonger is uh, portrayed in this film. I don't know. I have mixed feelings on that. I think the film definitely lands on the side of meeting violence with violence is not going to be an ultimately sustainable solution. And that's, you know, something that we can, you know, toy with and discuss philosophically and kind of look at the record over time and and across different countries through history as to whether that's true or or whether it's false. Certainly, I think Kilmonga is set up as that. Um, I agree um, that he sets up as this sort of Fanonian um, example or philosophy or ideology within the film, which is that oppression and violence need to be met with violence because that's all that the violence and the oppression understands. The question is, once you've done that and you've gained ascendancy through violence and you've created the sort of... um, the the sort of bitterness and... um, division that violence engenders and the fact that violence can also engender more violence. The question is, have you created a sustainable solution after that? 
you know, once you've used your violence, is it possible to rein it back in and create a peaceful and equal regime going forward without those who were losers in the fight having memory of what that looked like and often when we see situations of violence even in in you know freedom fighting um in in different parts of the world the lines can get blurred between you know sort of legitimate tactics and tactics against you know civilians against uh villagers against ordinary people and the kind of you know, long-standing wounds and bitterness that that can create within societies that keep playing it, it's playing themselves out uh, over time, is something that um, is potentially quite dangerous. So I I do agree that in watching the film, I think Killmonger, even just the way that the character is portrayed, there's something more compelling about that character, and there's something I think that a lot of us instinctively want to respond to. That you know. <laughs> We, we kind of want to see action to address some of these systems of oppression. And the, you know, let's just administer aid solution does seem um, rather weak. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a real fair argument to be made that unleashing violence isn't necessarily the solution. And there is an argument to be made that some of these issues are around... Um, lack of unity within the black community that are the black global community are around lack of economic empowerment. Um, And so there is a fair point to be explored that not just violence or maybe violence not at all might be a sustainable solution. But um, being able to stand in a place of better sort of bargaining power vis-a-vis the rest of the world because you are not in a situation of poverty and need uh, might be an alternative path to take. You know, I, I, to defend the aid thing for a second, um, isn't that what the original Black Panthers were about? He comes back to Oakland in the end and and goes and uh, the original Black Panthers were providing uh, health care and, and uh, education and stuff. They wanted to, uh, that, that was part of their shtick too. And that was seen as a as a good thing, and something that was replicated by by government. Um, does uh, what do you, what do you think of that, Anna? I mean, I can see how that is a lovely thing to do, but when you pose violence and power as a global structural problem, then the solution has to be different. And I think that the movie does a beautiful job of doing that. I mean, there's this really lovely moment when Killmonger is explaining to the woman at the British Museum while she doesn't why she doesn't own that mask. He mm-hmm. understands the history of violence and and power and structure and and that's how he's thinking about it as a global structural question, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And we all know that it is literally impossible to reconfigure the global distribution of power through a gentleman's agreement, right? That's so. <laughs> that is why. That is why the question of violence is very much has to be on the table. And realize that Killmonger is not talking about violence. He's talking about using it to constitute an. Order. Those are, are two different things, right? And that um, 
that the movie does a good job of setting up the problem beautifully like that, but then in an attempting to think a solution returns us to a kind of very um, individual kind of, um, um, I would say, very um, small-minded sense of, of how violence works and how you provide a solution to it. One of the things I found really satisfying about uh, Killmonger's being the bad guy is they they seem to filter him through the CIA to make him a bad guy, and and it's like in the in the Shape of Water, the the film that won the Oscar, a very different film. The movie the the person is a is from the CIA who's a bad guy. We're getting lots of CIA bad guys, but we also had a really nice CIA guy in this movie who who helps the Wakandans. So it it, it kind of played both sides of the fence. Chris, Christopher, you have any thoughts on that? I, I do. I, um, I think. I think the real. I think you know. I think Anna's point about wanting to institute a, a, a new global order is is absolutely right. Um, I think to just circle back to the, your your point about the Panthers to get back to this point, um, the Panthers did believe in aid, but they also had aid with guns. Yeah. Um, and they had aid with guns to let people know that we're going to take care of our own and we'll leave you alone, but leave us alone because if you don't leave us alone, then there's another kind of response, right? Um, and that's off the table in Panther. And that debate is never really had in good faith. So that's 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 one point. But the other point, um, you know, Killmonger is filtered through CIA. And, you know, my big problem with the movie has been, for those who have read my Boston Review piece, is the portrayal of American blackness in particular. And here you have this guy who's gone to MIT um, and joined the CIA. He's become the world's apparently most elite killer. Um, so already in the black body, you have a person who's highly intelligent, but what he'll really be known for is just how dangerous and murderous he is. And he's also a tool. Um, and the person who has helped craft him into a tool is somehow benevolent, is going to help this African country save, be saved from the tool that he helped to cultivate and create. So there's an odd perversity and reversal of the sympathies here. We're really meant to kind of love um, 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 ever, uh, the agent, I believe, ever his name is, skip, is uh, skipping my mind. Um, we're really kind of meant to really have a lot of affection from, you know, tousleless hair as a colonizer. And, but yeah, here's this American black man who has legitimate anger in him. Um, and we must put him down. We, we must end him. And there's just this really bad economy of affect in the movie that is just deeply offensive and counterproductive to the very question of liberation. Christopher LeBron is the author of Black Panther is Not the Movie We Deserve in the Boston Review. And uh, we're also speaking with Inahia Doro, and her article is Africa is a Country in Wakanda. And Nicola Woodruff, uh, her article is Beyond Wakanda's Way, Africanizing the Mining Sector Benefits. We're going to get into the mining sector benefits and other things about Wakanda coming up after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the Black Panther movie with Ina Hiodoro from Marquette University and Christopher LeBron from Johns Hopkins University and Nicola Woodruff, a legal analyst with the Natural Resources uh, Governance Institute. And Nicola, you wrote about uh, the whole uh, resources issue here in your article, Beyond Wakanda's Way, Africanizing Mining Sector Benefits. And um, how, how should we look at uh, Wakanda? Is it a place that has, uh, you know, wisely used its mineral resources or how, in, a, in an idyllic way? Uh, how did, what did you get out of this? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a certain um, idealism to this, right? Uh, Wakanda is this uh, fictional uh, African country that's very rich in this uh, amazing mineral vibranium, which is virtually indestructible. It absorbs kinetic energy. And it's used this mineral to manufacture weapons, and the Black Panther's suit is made out of it, and it's used as an input in a different technology within the society. And we have this picture of this very advanced um technologically advanced society that seems to be doing very well. So it's managed its mineral wealth effectively. It's used it in um, developing a manufacturing sector and it has complete control of the mineral value chain from extraction to processing and refining and to inputs into uh, manufacturing. And this is obviously a very different picture from what we see in much of the African continent, with a few exceptions, but much of the African continent, which is also very rich in, in natural resources. I mean, several African countries are in the top 10 producers of various minerals, such as copper and gold and cobalt and uranium. And the continent is also extremely natural resource dependent. So still, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, total exports are represented by, I think, three quarters, are, three quarters of um, total exports are represented by natural resources still. But we see a very different picture of how these resources are managed on the continent. And just looking from the perspective of the degree of African control and participation in these sectors, not, not looking at other aspects for the for the meantime of of management we see a very different picture where extraction is dominated by foreign companies with very little participation by locals in the sector in terms of direct employment or in terms of um, supply of goods and services to these uh, mining companies you know, we've, and, got, we've got a quick clip here, and it's um, Martin Freeman who portrayed the white CIA agent in the mm -hmm. movie, and he, he is in this little Mar Marvel featurette with uh, Michael B. Jordan, the, uh, the actor behind Killmonger. Wakanda's walls have been up since its inception. It's the best-kept secret in the world. Because they have something the world wants. They have this natural resource that kind of thrives off of. They mine it, they use it in technology. It's very sought after by anybody who's ever come in contact with it. Black Panther has to look out for an entire nation and then also consider that nation's place and how they affect the rest of the world. Um, Ina, he, you know, when they're dealing with this kind of gigantically important natural resources, um, what does this say about post-colonial situations and 
uh, they seem to have behaved in this unique way. That uh, what, what, what is Wakanda about to you? Africa has always had things that the world wants, so mm. there's nothing unique about it. What could be different would be Africa having leverage on how these things it has circulates in the world, right? Um, that so what Wakanda does, right, the fact that it has this valuable mineral that it has kept to itself, right, that is not really circulating through the global corridors of power and capital is not necessarily groundbreaking, right, because the big challenge is what does it mean to have vibranium and control the circulation of vibranium globally, that, I think, is what, that's where the real movie will start, right? The moment that Wakanda says, look, I am here, I am going to exist within a global world that is already anchored in relationship to the West, that's when the real conflict will start. But the idea of, you know, an idyllic African world that is secluded, that is cut off from global flows of capital and commodities and power is is great, right? But what the post-colonial moment is, right, is, is that Africa enters into a kind of global mapping of power, but inhabits its peripheries, right? That, 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 so, yes, um, Wakanda kind of is situated in it's it's it is pre-colonial in a sense it is outside of 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 um colonial um machinations of power in a sense right because it is secluded and sequestered um nicola what about you know they really avoid the resource curse in you know with the seclusion and everything but um it seems Unrealistic. I mean, you've got a monarch, uh, the most, <laughs> one of the most corruptible <laughs> forms of government uh, you can imagine, and they they seem to get away with it with enlightened monarchy. Uh, what do you? How do you? How do you read all that? Well, the the resource curse is this uh, d- is a description of this phenomenon whereby resource rich countries tend to have or often have these worst development outcomes than non-resource rich countries. And that's across several dimensions. And one of them is the tendency towards or the risk of of a tendency towards authoritarianism. And one of the drivers of this, or it's, it's believed one of the drivers, is that the revenues that are generated from the natural resource sector allow the government to have revenues to spend without being dependent on taxation of the public, which means that one of the core mechanisms for citizen engagement uh, with government and citizens call for accountability of the government to them for how the country is managed and how the revenues are managed is missing in that picture. And governments are able to use these revenues to build up these patronage networks. They're able to use subsidies to somewhat pacify uh, the population and present um, prevent or at least delay resistance uh, to to some aspects of their of their rule. And what we see in Wakanda is, as you said, 
a monarchy. So it's not a democracy. It seems to be well run, but it's not participatory. The citizens don't seem to be involved and engaged in the direction that the country is going in and the decisions that are being made at the top. And what that means is that the decisions are very much dependent on whoever is on top. So assuming that you have a good leader, um, you have good decisions being made and all is supposedly going well. Uh, Then again, once you get another leader that might want to go in a radically different direction, which is what we see with Killmonger, what we see is that, you know, when he decides to take Wakanda in a very different foreign policy direction, there's no real opposition, uh, no real checks and balances, no real structures institutionally to prevent that from happening because his decision is just the decision. So in that sense, you know, we can imagine that Wakanda does demonstrate one aspect of the resource curse. But to be clear, I mean, democracy, and we've seen this, not to delve too deeply into this particular issue, but democracy doesn't necessarily mean rule of law and good governance, certainly. Um, Mm -hmm. Rule of law property rights, good governance aren't necessarily um, entirely dependent at all times on having what would be considered from a Western point of view a fully democratic regime. But we can imagine that Wakanda is at risk, uh, depending on what happens with with later kings, of going in uh, potentially very negative directions because of these lack of institutional structures. And there's also this, uh, it's this kind of petty notes in the movie that I saw online someone comments on and it's this scene where Nakia and uh, T'Challa are walking through the marketplace and the marketplace looks very similar to marketplaces that you might find now in many African countries but certainly nowhere near as technologically advanced and sophisticated as the rest of uh, Wakanda or certainly the capital seems to look and so you know the question we can imagine is Is the wealth being evenly distributed? Is the development even across the country? Are the different opinions and interests and perspectives of different groups being effectively represented at the top? It's not entirely clear. We do see that there is this uh, council and they seem to represent uh, the different ethnic groups within Wakanda. But it's it's an open question as to whether uh, that works fully effectively to make sure that, that interests are properly taken into account. Then again... We do see that the, the the structure that is in place has managed to preserve a situation of peace. I think at the very beginning of the movie, you see that there was this civil war amongst the different ethnic groups. And, you know, you do wonder whether movement towards democracy might foment those uh, ethnic tensions again and lead to a situation that we see in in different ethnically diverse uh, democracies where the politics is very much influenced by ethnicity, which can elevate tensions and actually not necessarily always lead in the interest of uh, of effective governance. So it, it's questions that we can kind of play with and, and think about. I'm talking with Nicola Woodruff. She's a legal analyst with the Natural Resources Governance Institute. Also with me is Ina Hiadoro from Marquette, and Christopher LeBron is with John Hopkins University. Um, Christopher, what do you, what do you think about um, 
the the Wakandan state. Uh, a lot of people have talked about its, uh, you know, it's got this resource and it closed itself off and it's Wakanda first and it's a Trumpian mm. kind of mm. like uh, dreamland. I, I think the, the guys on Breitbart thought, wow, this is great that finally mm. the hero is is Donald Trump. Uh, what did you What did you think about that? So I, I you know, here's my, here's the most generous reading of it, but I I, I won't stay. <laughs> What to say there? Um, the most generous reading is: Look, these are people in brown skin who don't have to have democracy to show each other to show themselves care and concern and can take care of themselves without social abuse. That's the that's the generous reading. Um, but the reading that gets a little more troubling is that all of this depends on fairly radical homogeneity, national nationalistic nationally and ethnically. Um, but then, with respect to the Wakandan state. Um, there's another aspect of all of this, at least how it's portrayed in the movie. Um, and there's something I haven't heard come up as much as, as it should, but also has to do with, you know, the movie has been praised for, you know, a lot of its gen- its gen- the way it uh, presents gender. Even I have praised it. Okoye is this very kind of forthright, powerful woman. Nakia is, in my opinion, the kind of ethical center of the movie and so on. But there is this at the heart of Wakanda is this idea that men will rule. Um, one thing I never quite got about the movie, and it took me, I think, the second time to really appreciate it, but um, it's not exactly clear why Shuri has to go running to M'Baku to give him the flower. She has the flower. Um, why doesn't she just take it and try and solve the problems? And the response yeah. people have given is that, well, M'Baku has the army. But it's interesting that when T'Challa wakes back up and M'Baku doesn't give him the army, he's going to go do what he has to do anyway. So whenever it seems to me a woman is on the verge of having power, um, real power in the movie, um, she goes and they all run, her and, and Ramonda, they all go running to M'Baku and give him the ultimate power and say, can you save us? Um, and so there's this kind of patriarchy embedded in this notion of Wakanda, at least as it's presented in the movie, that, you know, T'Challa is a presumptive ruler and he has to go through the rights, but he's a presumptive ruler. T'Challa is apparently dead and Shuri is not the presumptive ruler. And there's a real question there about when it really comes down to it, who will lead? Um, and it seems to me that as as positive as some of the the the, the women characters in the movie are and how powerful they are, the movie seems to to firmly land on the idea of patriarchal rule in Wakanda, and that's, that, that should raise an eyebrow. Christopher LeBron is the author of Black Panther is Not the Movie We Deserve in the Boston Review. We're also talking with Ina Hiodoro from Marquette and Nicola Woodrow from the Natural Resources Governance Institute. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. <laughs> This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Black Panther, the movie today, and the place of Wakanda. And with us is Christopher LeBron. He's the author of Black Panther's Not the Movie We Deserve. Nicola Woodruff, who wrote about Beyond Wakanda's Way, Africanizing the Mining Sector Benefits. And Ina Hiodoro is with Marquette University, and she recently co-authored the article, Africa is a Country in Wakanda. I wanted to talk to some about um, how... 
this idyllic Africa is portrayed in your mind and the kind of uh, people who are there. There are five tribes there. One of them lives in the mountains and, uh, you know, grunts a lot at uh, the white guys. Um, what, what, how did you – how do you take this? The The – Aesthetics or the utopian aesthetics of Black Panther is um, is is stunningly beautiful. I mean, you know, um, the the costumes, the landscapes, all of that is beautiful. I, I think I, I I my my only issue. I don't know if if, if I'll call it an issue. Just the the something that struck me is how familiar it appeared. Is that for a movie that is trying to imagine a future based on a world that never was, has never been, an Africa that has never been colonized, an Africa that is so well-run and beautiful and has access to this very valuable resource, to imagine that world in a way that is so familiar and anthropologically true to Africa today, to me is a little bit of a, it's it's a little problematic in the sense that if you're going to imagine a, a radically futuristic African world, it should be a world in which we can recognize Africa, but also sort of not recognize it because it's something so radically different. Um, I mean, even the the idea of making the character speak Kosa is a little bit kind of a cop out in a way. I mean, I would have loved for the um, for the filmmakers to invent a new language. You know, this is is a new African world. Let us speak a new language, right? Um, and 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 the ways in which they were deploying it directly from existing iconographies of Africa was a little kind of you know also um, not pushing the utopian impulse in the movie as far as they could have. Do you think that there was enough uh, nuance to the different kinds of people or Africa that there was? I mean, that the, there were these five groups, but there was only one that was different and they were more primitive. Well, that is actually coming from the fact that they simply put together a pastiche of Africa as it exists today. So that when you see everybody else apart from the Jabaris, you see an Africa that you already know. You see the guy with the um, mercy um, lip plate. You see the guy with the kente. You see the guy with the um, um, Zulu hat. I mean, this is an Africa that you already know. So that it 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 makes the Wakandan community actually less diverse because you can lump them all together as a kind of Africa turned into a country, right? And that um, those are the ways in which the movie just lost a chance to really reimagine the African world. And I think this is in part because the filmmakers are... Americans, right? 
right? So even if they are African-Americans, they are seeing Africa from a very Western point of view, right? That there's a sense in which Africa as it is, is already novel to them. To an American, mercy lip plate looks futuristic, yes. right? And that if he, want, if he or she wants to imagine the future, he's not thinking, so how can I make mercy lip plates look futuristic, right? Because by itself, it already serves a kind of futuristic criteria. And I think that that might be why the filmmakers thought that it was simply enough that to imagine an African futuristic world, we can just kind of pull together what already exists and is available to us in the continent. Uh, Christopher LeBron, what do, you, what do you think about this? We're kind of moving into the diaspora Africans and African diaspora kind of section here. Uh, wh- how do you read what was going on there? Well, first of all, I think I know these points are these are just brilliant points. Um, and this idea about radical imagination, I think, is really spot on. Um, you know, I do some work in Afrofuturism, and some of the things I've been thinking about is that there are two ways to have radical imagination. One is just put more brown people on a screen because there haven't been that many on a screen all at once. Um, and that seems to have been the kind of driving force behind this radical imagining. But I know you're absolutely right. There's not a radical reimagining of blackness or Africanness. You have the, the kind of prototypical dangerous American black man, and then you have all the points Aini has just made. And I want to add one more point. And, you know, I've been glad that when the movie came out, there are so many black viewers who have been so excited to kind of try and connect with the idea of Wakanda. If you go on Twitter, everyone's in Baku these days, <laughs> these days it seems. Um, but what I think people don't really kind of kind of really grasp is, you know, and I know it may sound cynical, but it is the truth. You know, Wakanda springs forth from the imagination of two white men. Um, and I can't help but think about Spike Lee's um, phrase, you know, magical Negroes. Um, and this is an idea he came up with to describe the way that blacks can be imagined in white imagination in a way to redeem, you know, liberal white guilt in some way um, or try to kind of evade the past or kind of redeem moral wrongdoings. And there's something really suspicious about just exactly how perfect the society seems to be and just how powerful and how rich they seem to be. Um, it seems to kind of detether them from all of the, re- the rest of reality in a way that doesn't seem to be very helpful for radical reimagining. Being unrealistic in any way, shape, or form doesn't seem to be helpful for rethinking our relationship to a history of colonialism and imperialism. So the whole aesthetic, you know, I was speaking to, I, I did a blog, I'm sorry, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and I was speaking to a very, very intelligent guy um, and he was saying, I was sitting there and I'm thinking about the movie and about 45 minutes in, I said out loud, despite myself, I'm being seduced. And that's what the movie really does. It seduces you into this image of these just powerful, beautiful, incredibly advanced people. Um, but the substance underneath that is, is highly suspect in many ways. All right. Um, and Nic- Nicola, I, do you want to weigh in on this? Do you have some yeah. thoughts about that? I mean, <laughs> I, I fear that, that we might be uh, probably turning off people seeing this movie <laughs> after, after they listen to us. I mean, I, I think all the points that have been made are extremely fair. But, you know, I, I think that we also should probably kind of take a step back and think of a few things. Number one, that, you know, this is 
based on a comic. This is based on fantasy. This is, you know, not a realist portrayal of of Africa or any particular issue, even though there are some very significant social messages that are involved. So the idea of creating an Africa that isn't, you know, tethered to reality, I mean, to start with, it's an autarky. I mean, that isn't tethered to, to something that an African country should actually build. I, I think, you know, it, that's the nature of the movie to a certain extent. Now, when we, it comes to the aesthetic and whether we've sufficiently kind of futurized Africa, I think part of what the aesthetic of this film is, is a celebration of the diversity and beauty of what African cultures are in the present tense with also a look towards the future and a look look towards this kind of fantastical possibility, but also just a celebration of, you know, this is the aesthetic and it's beautiful. So I think that the idea of someone speaking Kosa and seeing Kente blankets and seeing scarifications from, you know, um, from Southern Ethiopian tribes, etc. I think that that's beautiful because we see the aesthetic of different races and ethnic groups in fantastical settings and otherwise. I mean, you know, look at, you know, Game of Thrones for that matter. Um, we see these visual representations of um, of fashion, clothing, um, accessories from different cultures, you know, in, in a way that is fantastical and in a way that immerses you in this different place of escape. And we don't get to see that a lot for black or African aesthetics. So, I mean, I think that it's a good thing. And I also think that the the diversity that we see within Wakanda, I mean, there are two things going on there. I mean, it's a celebration of the cultures that do exist. And it's also pointing towards this idea of a unified African continent and African peoples, actually, across the globe, but a unified African continent that has all of these different cultures, that has all of these different identities, that has all of these different aesthetics, but can still also think of itself as one thing. And we see that movement in even structures that are happening right now on the continent. I mean, yesterday, and I mean, we can we can talk about the wisdom of it, but yesterday, 44 African countries signed the continental free trade area agreements to create a free trade area and uh, you know we we can talk about from an economic point of view and winners and losers whether that will ultimately be a good thing but there are movements towards uh, more coordination and that's one of the things that I tried to point out in my piece with even when it comes to managing the mining sector that using a regional and uh, uh, continental wide approach to confronting development problems and other issues could put potentially yield better effects than countries acting alone and thinking of themselves in isolation. Um, There's also a single African air transport market that's been created as of this year. So we're seeing movements towards, wait a minute, we we need to act together. We need to see ourselves as one thing. And I think that that's a good thing. And it's something that's pointed to in the Uh, film. Very interesting. Uh, um, We just got a minute or two left here, but I want to go around the table and ask you what you're expecting in the sequel. Um, Christopher LeBron, do you have any thoughts about what's going to come up next after this? Well, you know, Killmonger is probably not dead. He's, you know, he was dead, and he wasn't dead in, in, the, in the comics. <laughs> no, um, 
but so what what I hope is that the that the filmmakers now having a blockbuster on their hands and now having the security of knowing they'll have a second blockbuster actually take a few more narrative risks and really challenge people to rethink the very kind of texture of how race and justice, you know, can be thought of in ways outside of, as was pointed out earlier, fairly, you know, familiar neoliberal um, approaches. Ainehi, do you have some thoughts about what could happen next in Wakanda? I do. I think this, the next part is going to be where things really become interesting. In the final scene, T'Challa is standing in front of the entire world and saying that, look, we are coming out and we are going to lead the world. So what happens to people who are already leading the world? What type of conflict is going to come out in this kind of global space where Wakanda is saying we want to become the new center of the world? And I think it's easy to imagine an African world that is perfect and isolated. It is a bit more complicated to imagine a world that is reoriented and reconfigured in relationship to Africa. Aina Hiodoro is uh, with Marquette University. She teaches global Anglophone literatures there. She's founder of BrittlePaper.com. Her co-authored article is Africa is a Country in Wakanda. Thanks also to Nicola Woodruff, legal analyst with the Natural Resources Governance Institute. Her article is Beyond Wakanda's Way, Africanizing Mining Sector Benefits. And thanks to Christopher LeBron. His article in the Boston Review is Black Panther is Not the Movie We Deserve. He's a professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you all for joining us and having a great discussion about Black Panther the movie. Thank you. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.